It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Claudia here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In this week's episode, A Hunt, one nearly three decades in the making. It's a story about secrets, espionage, and a $5 million bounty. And it starts in 1994, in Rwanda, with one of the worst crimes of the past century. Years of civil war and decades of tension built up between the country's Tutsi minority and Hutu majority. And over the course of 100 brutal days, more than 800,000 Tutsi and moderate Hutus were slaughtered. So when one of the last men associated with that genocide was arrested earlier this year after decades at large, my colleague Will Brown flew out to South Africa to investigate exactly how one of the most wanted men in the world was finally caught. No, but like, I thought he was bullshitting. He's, he's not. He's legit. But, let, me, let me call him now. I'm recording on my phone. So, if you see that I'm not mad, they still, still want behind me. I didn't Contact and I have just been followed by two cars and a motorbike. We don't know who they are. When I realise, we split up and I managed to lose the tail. We, we don't want them to know who you are. That's the main thing too. I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. We're being followed because we're asking questions about a story. A story that should be good news. One of the most wanted men in the world has just been arrested after being on the run for almost three decades. Our most wanted Rwandan fugitive was arrested in Pearl, South Africa. The man is accused committing genocide. His name is Fuljons Kaishima, and for 28 years, he's been in hiding. Kaishima is charged with the killings of more than 2,000 innocent women, men, children. You probably haven't heard of him, but the US has had a $5 million bounty on his head for more than a decade. That's the same sum of money Osama bin Laden had on him before 9-11. I'd heard that a small unit at the United Nations, a band of genocide hunters, have been the ones to finally get him. So I went to Cape Town to find out how he escaped capture for so long and how they caught him. Sometimes it feels like the world is spilling out of control, like we're living in an age of impunity where the bad guys keep getting away. We see it in Ethiopia, in Syria and Ukraine. Crimes against humanity, war criminals that keep getting away. But here was a time where the bad guy 
had been put behind bars. The story already had an ending. So I, maybe naively, expected it was going to be quite straightforward. Don't break your head about it. You experience what I see every day. What I found instead was a world full of secrets, paranoia and espionage. There's a lot of, a lot of eyes that aren't these things at the moment. This week, the genocide hunters and the story of full Kaishima. On the surface, it's a story of unity and successful international cooperation. But dig a bit deeper, and it's something else entirely. Yes, I know Kaishima Fuljans. We were neighbors, just separated by a stream. Fuljans Kaishima's tale starts back in the 1990s. Safari Jean Bosco and Fuljans Kaishima grew up together in neighboring villages in central Rwanda. Decades of divide and rule tactics, first by German and Belgian colonialists and then by post-independence Rwandan elites, had left the country deeply scarred. Safari Jean Bosco was a young man at the time. He's from Rwanda's Tutsi ethnic minority. Fuljans Kaishima was from the Hutu majority. He worked as a teacher and later served the head teacher of a school in Nyange before becoming a police inspector. Jean Bosco says that Kaishima used his position as a teacher to discriminate against Tutsis. It was clear that he used to assign Tutsi teachers to schools located on far distant hills in order to transfer them away from their homes. In the early 1990s, the small landlocked East Central African country was in the midst of a civil war, fought between government forces and a rebel group called RPF. The government was Hutu, the rebel faction Tutsis. Few in the wider world paid attention. There was the occasional international headline here or there, or rare footage on TV showing Rwandans fleeing the country. But not much else. Inside Rwanda, it was getting really dangerous. Kaishima at some point had switched careers and become a police inspector where he was in charge of criminal investigations. Jean Bosco tells a story. I remember a Tutsi whose cow was eaten. The following morning, he asked a police officer to bring the people who had eaten the cow outside. Kaishima begrudgingly arrested the Hutu thieves. He told them, You stupid, greedy Hutus! Why did you eat Tutsi's cows? He told them, If you killed the Tutsis, the cows would have been yours anyway. When the Rwandan president's plane was shot out of the sky on the 6th of April 1994, there was still not much beyond a few reports. The presidents of two troubled East African countries had been killed aboard the same plane, shot down, it's presumed, by rebels in Rwanda's capital. It was a trigger moment, because the next day, Decades of pent-up hatred and propaganda descended into a genocide against the Tutsis. And the reports started to file in. A bloodbath was underway in that country, which has been torn by civil war for decades. The dead and wounded could be numbered in the thousands after just two days of fighting between the country's two ethnic groups, Hutus and Tutsis. Hutus killing Tutsis. Death. Destruction. Survivors told during the stories of the day government soldiers arrived. Abimana Nuzamihu was lucky to have escaped the massacre. Simon Stanford was a cameraman with Swedish television at the time. 
he crossed Lake Kivu in a French military supply boat from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he met a Catholic priest. Catholicism is really strong in Rwanda, and you know all of these congregations were completely integrated. They were completely mixed, and you know people felt that they would get shelter in 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 the churches, and in some cases they did. You know, in some cases the the clergy were heroic, uh, but the problem is that uh, you know the clergy were very often part of the sort of elite leadership of, of the towns and the mayors and the prefects were were part very, very often. You know, most commonly, they were part of the uh, elite that were part of this sort of web of indoctrinated and indoctrinators who were strategically planning the, the, the genocide. A few dozen miles down the road, Jean Bosco and his family were fighting for their lives. They started killing people in our area on the 9th of April. When they attacked that day, our family fought back. We repelled them with stones and then attacked again on the 10th of April. But then, the day after, we faced a more serious attack. A car drove past firing bullets through the banana trees at our home. Jean Bosco's family, along with hundreds of others, fled to Nyange Church for refuge. The church was impressive, a large brick building that could fit thousands of people inside. God would protect them, they thought, as they barricaded the doors. Kaishema came to the church on the night of the 14th, along with another man, both with guns. He came and stood by the church's door with a piece of paper. He read out the names of widows who stepped outside with their children. These were Hutu women whose Tutsi husbands had been killed in villages and managed to flee like us to the church. Kaishema brought them outside one by one. Those Hutu women were allowed to leave. People were told they would be safe when they were at the church. What followed was something of a last stand fight. Hundreds of Tutsi men and boys fought to keep their attackers away from their families sheltering in the church. We fought back by throwing stones. But the Hutu attackers had guns, machetes and grenades. The first bullet that was fired at the church was shot by a policeman called Mahalama on Kaishema's orders. Mahalama is in prison and pleaded guilty to that crime. So, this is how we were killed. Fulgence Kashima was one of the men leading the Hutu militia. They lobbed grenades inside the church where the Tutsi civilians were sheltering. After that, they doused it in fuel and set it alight, torching a church with thousands of civilians inside. That didn't kill everyone, though. So Kaishima and the militia used a bulldozer to bring the church down on the last remaining survivors. More than 2,000 people are thought to have died in the Nyange church massacre. That day, Jean Bosco lost 10 members of his family. He only survived by hiding under some dead bodies outside the church. The Tutsis locked doors and I stayed outside. As I ran to join other Tutsis who were fighting near the place at a playground, I fell into bodies of Tutsis and took cover in them. And Rwanda is full of stories like this. Over the course of those hundred days, starting in April 1994, more than 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus were killed. Amid the horrors, Nyange stands out as one of the worst single atrocities. And for decades, Fulgenskaya Shima has escaped justice. 
I flew to South Africa the moment I heard that Fulgence Kaishima was going to be put on trial. Kaishima was suddenly arrested in late May in Pal, a town just outside Cape Town. They found him 2,500 miles away from Nyange Church in one of the wealthiest parts of Africa. UN investigators, accompanied by heavily armed South African police, had tracked him down to a farm owned by a large agricultural group where he'd apparently been working as a security guard for years. Had he been hiding out in a luscious vineyard this entire time? Had anyone been helping him? And was this a great moment for international justice or something more complicated? Wow. All right, so he's, he's waving at the audience. He's just come up and uh, dead quiet in the, in the auditorium. Kaishima is standing about two feet from me in the dock. A huge pack of photographers trying to get the, get the shot. He's a large man in his 60s with rectangular glasses. There's an almost Mona Lisa smile on his face. The confidence of a big man on trial. One detail sticks in my head. He's holding two Bibles in his hands. Not one, two. A man accused of murdering 2,000 people in a church. Apart from this strange smile, the only emotion he shows is when he waves at a crowd of onlookers sitting at the back of the court. Someone waved at him in the, um, in the audience. They waved back, smiling. I assume they're his family. He looks more subdued than he did the first, the first time he reappeared. It's quite extraordinary standing just next to a man who up until recently had a five million pound bounty on his head. We're in an old magistrate's courtroom. The place feels a bit grabby, worn out. If I'd been expecting some grand finale to this decades-long hunt, it all felt rather different. The defence hasn't even been given the charge sheet against Kashima, meaning after a few short minutes, the case is postponed for another week. He's not even accused of committing genocide. Instead, he's standing trial for crimes he allegedly committed in South Africa, various counts of identity fraud and fiddling his immigration papers. Whenever that finishes in South Africa, and it could be years, he's going to be extradited to either an international court or to Rwanda. He's accused of genocide or complicity in genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, and then with extermination as a crime against humanity. But there is one avenue we can pursue. Outside the courthouse, we see a man talking to a pack of journalists. In prison, they come this. If they don't say that, you, you hang yourself with them. A man called Joseph Habenshuti. He says he's a family friend of the Kaishimas and is speaking on their behalf. And he, at least, gives us the friend side of the story. Yes, I'm a coffee man. You're a coffee man. How do you take it? Black, no sugar. I'm sweet enough. He claims the UN has arrested the wrong man. Untrue. And that the genocide was more of a conflict between Tutsis and Hutus, which has been greatly exaggerated by a cabal of Tutsis. Also untrue. His interview matters despite the false claims, because Habenshuti shows how and why members of the Rwandan diaspora were willing to cover for Kaishima. He says that Fuljons Kaishima went from Rwanda to DR Congo, down to Tanzania, and on to South Africa overland after the genocide. But uh, you understand that from 2006, he, he went in hiding. The family was staying is there in Ibiava. Everyone just knew them. Like uh, even at a certain level, like uh, 2010-2011, the community of Rwanda started like to support them like uh, a widow because they knew there is no way back. 
Considering how the media were publicizing it, we knew there is no way back. Habenshuti says Kayashima then went into hiding when he realized investigators were after him in the early 2000s. That neither he nor any of Fuljon's Kayashima's friends or family knew where he was for more than 15 years. Habenshuti offers to put us in touch with Kayashima's wife and his brother-in-law. This would be useful. I want to challenge both of them. They live in Cape Town, about 40 miles from where Kaishima was found in hiding. I struggle to believe that they hadn't seen him in almost 20 years. Hello? Hello? Pangras? Yes. Yes. I know. Maybe later. I wanted just to give, you the num- to give them the number. Whenever you, you will be allowed to speak, you can contact them and they give you a view. Okay. okay. Oh, all right. Okay, thank you. Them, just we are restricted to what we say. Yes, they are hearing. It's but in the end, speaker. we never heard from them. To stay at liberty for so long, Kaishima had probably been getting some sort of support from a network of people who either thought he was innocent or justified in what he did. After the genocide finally ended, with the RPF army retaking the country, tens of thousands of Hutus fled into exile. Many exiles are still convinced that the genocide was exaggerated, that they are the real victims. Through Habenshuti, I at least understood one thing. Kaishima still had friends, still had the support of some sort of network. He had been successful in hiding for so long, no doubt, because of this network. But the question was still there. How was he caught? The official narrative is that a South African task force set up by President Cyril Ramaphosa had worked closely with UN investigators to track Kaishima down. A UN press release when he was arrested said that Kaishima was located and arrested for an analysis-driven investigation exploiting multi-source evidence with both traditional and leading-edge methodologies. Everyone and their mother, from the authorities in the small southern African nation of Iswantini to Canada, Mozambique and the United Kingdom, got a shout-out in the press release. Surely they would want to speak to us. But no. We want to go to the vineyard where he worked. But we're told there's been a court order restricting reporting about where he lived and worked. This is to protect people's identities, who unknowingly sheltered a man wanted for genocide. But it closes off a whole section of their investigation for us. We thought the South African task force that helped to track Kaishima down would be keen to talk. The whole thing makes them look pretty good. But they refuse to speak with us until all the cases are closed, which could be years away. We call up the Rwanda government, but they stonewalled us. Okay, so Mr. Kusi Fostin, spokesperson of the National Public Prosecution Authority in Rwanda, has replied uh, very tersely to my message saying, forward your request to... For something that was supposed to be good news, it's remarkably hard to get anyone to speak about this great success of international justice. But I do make some progress. I meet a private investigator who's been working on the case for years, a man with a lot of connections in security and law enforcement. I can't give his real name here, but for now, I'm going to call him Benjamin. We have distorted Benjamin's voice to protect his identity. 
uh, I could never imagine that uh, he would be found here, of all places. Uh, you know, we we followed leads in Malmesbury, we followed leads in Cape Flats, and, and all over the place. Benjamin laid out how different South African investigators had trailed Kaishima's extended family around Cape Town over the years. The family claimed they hadn't spoken to Kaishima since the early 2000s when he went into hiding, but none of the investigators took that seriously. The investigators hoped there would be some sign, some telltale hint, that would lead them to Kaishima's hiding place. They scoured social media looking for photos of family events. They were looking for a family member who wasn't in the group photos at Christmas or at birthdays. If they weren't there with their loved ones, maybe they could be keeping Kaishima company wherever he was hiding. Benjamin then starts connecting us to a murky world of former cops, spooks and private investigators. People who worked on Kaishima's case over the years because they wanted to get that $5 million bounty. Everyone wanted to get that cash a ticket out of corrupt, creaking, post-apartheid South Africa. The big thing I get, though, from various sources, are a bunch of photocopied documents. Yes, we came in through Swazi. After almost a week of being in Cape Town, I've got a paper trail on Kayashima. 1998, came in through Swazi. Registered a refugee, he used a Burundian passport the name Full Chance. And they helped tell a story of how he evaded capture and how he was tracked. They reveal that even the basic details of what Joseph Habenshuti, the family friend of Kaishima, told me were completely wrong. There's a Malawian passport, a Burundian passport, a South African refugee papers, refugee papers from the tiny kingdom of Iswantini, formerly known as Swaziland, proof of exit out of South Africa into neighbouring Mozambique on one of his passports, multiple businesses set up under false identities, even medical records. Almost everything has different names, different dates of birth, on the surface at least. Nothing connects the identities to each other, apart from the face of that man I'd seen in court. Living on the run, you bleed money. A fake identity can cost tens of thousands of dollars. You need connections, you need to know which officials to bribe and how to play the system. The most plausible answer to how he managed to do this for 30 years is that he must have had some support from like-minded people such as Joseph Habenshuti. Something else that was beginning to emerge during the interviews was just how chaotic the search for Fuljons Kaishima had been. Two sources told us that as these documents started to spread around intelligence circles, there had been a sort of wild goose chase across the region to find the wanted man. They said that some spies and officials even started taking time off work to chase up leads. Everyone wanted the bounty money. When the United Nations investigators came to South Africa to check out certain addresses, the sources told us that spies would take time off work or sick leave to follow them around, all desperate to get to Kaishima first. Any official who found him could not claim the bounty themselves. That was against the rules. But there seemed to be an idea that they could give the tip-off to a friend or family member so then they could all split the bounty between them. Benjamin said there were also fears that Rwandan assassins would get to Fuljons Kaishima first. This sounds mad, but Rwandan opposition figures, or dissidents, have a habit of ending up dead. The country's former spy chief, who became an exiled opposition figure, was murdered in his hotel room in Johannesburg, South Africa in 2013. Others have also ended up dead. 
Those killings are part of the reason why South Africa has been so reluctant to help Rwanda. This story of competing factions, of competing groups, battling to find Kayashima first, was so at odds with their official narrative. So I went to someone who understood South Africa far better than me. Okay. I'm Aaron Heyman. I'm an investigative journalist with Times Live. Aaron is a Cape Town journalist. We're investigative journalists. We're an investigative unit. Aaron first came to the Kayashima story three years ago. I was hearing murmurs that that Fulgens Kayashima was being sought uh, in South Africa, that there was a suspicion that he might be uh, here. But it sort of died down for quite a while. I think there were a lot of other things that took uh, precedent. And then very recently, I guess in the past six months, seemed to me that there was there was a zeroing in, uh, so to speak, on, on Kaishima uh, here in South Africa. Aaron went to where Kaishima lived in Pal and spoke to his white Afrikaans landlord. He was told by a source that Kaishima had actually saved the landlord's wife in an armed robbery several years ago. He was loved by the family for it. When Kaishima was arrested, members of the family burst into tears. The people he'd been living with apparently didn't even know what the Rwandan genocide was. Aaron picked up on the same thing as us. Spies and officials were taking time off work to go after Kaishima. What sort of piqued my interest about this case in recent months, just before his arrest, was that uh, South African intelligence agency personnel and police crime intelligence personnel and personnel from intelligence agencies operating in South Africa from around the world were putting in sick leave and taking annual leave to, to follow up leads, well, what they thought were leads, on Kai Shema's location in South Africa because they were after the reward. So these people were basically heading up to Botswana. They were heading to Eswatini, to Swaziland. They were looking all over the place for Fulgen's Kai Shema on their own money and on their own time. You know, and they were, they were also undercutting each other. They were trying to throw each other off. And it, it, it's uh, emblematic of sort of where the South African intelligence services is at the moment. It's a shambles. And what I found even more amusing was the fact that the UN team clearly knew that there were other people that were snooping around and they did an excellent job of throwing people off. They were very, very good at maintaining operational security. They, I think they, they left sort of red herrings. Red herrings. It was a thought that kept coming back to me time and time again. Clues that were intended to be distracting or misleading. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sure. Uh, my name is Serge Brammertz. Um, I'm a Belgian citizen. Serge is a tall man. You get the sense he's an old dog who's seen it all and knows all the tricks. An action man in a tailored suit who could wax lyrically of past tales at cocktail parties as easily as slog it out in the field somewhere. Without Serge and his team, Fuljons Kashima would still be free. And I'm the chief prosecutor of the tribunal which took over the remaining functions of the Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the Tribunal for Rwanda. Out of all the authorities and officials who tracked Kayashima, Serge has been the only one person willing to go on record. He's the chief prosecutor for the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals. It sounds like another grey United Nations organisation, but it's not. Serge Bramitz's small band of genocide hunters are the reason Kayashima is behind bars today. He's got a charming smile, but I know right from the first handshake that this is not a man you want to get on the wrong side of. When Serge took charge of the tracking team, it was a complete mess. For years, UN investigators have relied on dozens of sources around the world. And this meant they would get simultaneous sighting reports of genocideers on three continents and be left none the wiser. Serge cleared the decks and started everything from scratch, trying to work out where the last actual confirmed sighting of Kaishima was. We had really reasons to believe that he was living in South Africa, which also my predecessor had reasons to believe, but those investigations in the past never led to, to, to anything, anything there. So we had some challenges. It started basically three years ago when we started cooperating with, with South Africa. To begin with, Serge says cooperation was hard to come by. Um, you know, when we sent our request for assistance there, first we got a reply saying... Well, there's no legal basis to cooperate with, with the mechanism. South African officials were refusing to share useful information. To execute the arrest warrant, they said, oh, we went to the house where the family is living, he was not there, and then telling us, well, we have, informa- we have reasons to believe that he left South Africa. So we asked evidence about it, they said, well, we cannot, cannot share, this confidential. Then we said, look, then give us his file. And then the answer was no. Serge lost patience. And it really put me in the uncomfortable situation that I was obliged in New York in the Security Council to be very critical at a time where South Africa was sitting as a member in the Security Council. In a 2019 UN Security Council meeting, Serge condemned the unwillingness of South African police and authorities to work with them to hunt down people like Kayashima. It was very difficult for me to understand that the country of Nelson Mandela would protect or at least not cooperate in relation to an individual suspected of having killed more than 2,000 mainly women and children in, in, in a church. 
And there were many South African interlocutors, especially at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who were very embarrassed by the situation of non-cooperation from, from South Africa. Finally, last year, things improved. Since this task force has been put in place, the cooperation has been fantastic. And um, I've said it uh, many times also after the arrest, while uh, it is true that I've been very critical during two years in relation to the lack of support. Well, today we say that if we have been able to arrest this guy, it was very much thanks to the excellent cooperation we got from South Africa. Serge Bramertz paints a picture of international cooperation and unity. There's an element of that, to be sure. But I think he's also playing a bit of politics. He wants to tip his hat to the right people. What I experienced on the ground was a mess, a game of cloak and dagger. The people we spoke to involved in the investigation said different factions and groups kept spying on each other. Towards the end of my trip in Cape Town, Benjamin started acting strangely, taking pictures of people behind us in cafes or of cars driving past. He's sweating and wide-eyed and shows me several photos of cars he said he keeps seeing. At first, I think he's being paranoid that the whole Kaishima case has worn him down. That evening, I meant to meet Benjamin outside my rented apartment to give him something. It's pouring with rain, then I see it for myself. As Benjamin pulls up suddenly, two cars and a motorbike from the pictures he showed me whiz past and park odd locations up the road. No, but like, I thought he was bullshitting. He's, he's not. He's legit. But... Let me, let me call it now. We split up and I walk up the road into a shop. I make sure no one's following me before doubling back. They keep following Benjamin's car, so I'm okay. I say the, I say the motorbike is also part of them. Yeah, I, I don't really know what to say. It was don't, 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 don't break your head. Don't, don't break your head about it. You experience what I see every day. We still don't know who was following us. It could have been local cops or a faction of the South African intelligence services. Or it could have been a private security company working for a foreign embassy. But I keep coming back to that Aaron Heyman comment about UN officials throwing red herrings to put people off the scent. And it's little wonder that I struggled. South Africa's underworld runs deep. You've got a lot of spooks, a lot of spies and maybe yeah, state security types in Cape Town. A lot of consulates around here. So Pretoria has one of the largest concentration of embassies in the world. And then many of those embassies have consulates in Cape Town. And uh, yeah, you'll find a lot of spies hanging around here trying to gather information. The underworld is a great source uh, of information for a lot of these guys. A lot of the underworld people are like your sort of mob bosses or your gang bosses and stuff tend to work uh, from time to time for like secret service organizations or your sort of spy agencies and stuff like that. So great place for gathering information, great place for disappearing if you want to. And I mean, South Africa is basically a, um, a 
catchment area for people from around the continent. So the African diaspora uh, tend to come to South Africa because it's easier to get to the rest of the world. You'll find that countries like the US, countries like Canada, countries like the UK, if they're coming through South Africa and they've committed some sort of identity fraud or they've managed to make it into South Africa and they've got a South African passport or a South African identity, it makes it easier for them to, to take the next step uh, to apply for visas. The UN teams weren't the only ones tracking Kaishima, nor were the South African task forces. Private investigators from across the region were desperate to find him for that $5 million bounty. I know there was also a team paid by the US Embassy looking for him. Southern African spies were also supposedly taking time off work to chase down leads in the hope they could claim the bounty. And it's likely that Rwandan assassins were also hunting Kayashima. A rat race for a most wanted man. The way they caught him in the end was methodical tracking him over years. You know, we, we knew already that he had left to the DRC from there, and, you know, weeks after after the, the, the killings. From there, he went to a refugee camp in Tanzania. Uh, he stayed there a few months. He went to a refugee camp in Mozambique. He already used a different, two different identities at that time. Obviously, he had uh, supporters. He went from one refugee camp to, to another. He obviously went first uh, alone to, to South Africa and obviously he was using connections in the diaspora of like-minded individuals. That's how he got his, his first job as this security guard at this uh, big mall. And then he only uh, later on brought his, his family, family uh, to South Africa as well. So at the end of the day, he was living a very modest life in a very quiet neighborhood under a fake identity using different passports at different moments in time. And so we were planning to start in May a number of, of interviews of a number of persons of interest. And we were hoping that, you know, in May, June, um, this would have some movement as a result within the diaspora um, to make sure that he's coming out of hiding, that he would perhaps try to move somewhere else if the pressure on the network was, was increasing. Suddenly things started accelerating. And then the success was much faster than we, we thought because very quickly, once we started uh, using our more convincing arguments, we, we got the few missing informations uh, of the puzzles which allowed us to locate him, to go there and to have him arrested. Serge used to work in the field. But when you're as senior as he is, you don't get to be the man on the ground. There's a note of envy in his voice as he describes their arrest. Well, I, I knew that they were getting up at five o'clock in the morning uh, to, to do a search in, in a house uh, together with the police in relation to an individual who obviously had also a lot of fake documents, immigration file was not, was not in order. And so when, when doing the search in the house, they found indeed some interesting documents which allowed us to believe that he had knowledge um, about, about the fugitive. It seems that we are getting the missing, the missing link. And then they told me, well, we, we got uh, the information we are looking for. Then half hour later, well, we are going to a place. Then they went to the, to the hiding place. They spoke with the, the owner of the place who was confirming the description of the individual we were looking for. He was confirming the name 
of the wife as children of the person we were looking for, so we knew it is must be him. And then we, uh, you know, the special intervention team came, the arrest team went to the, to the location where, where he was working, where then he was intercepted, uh, where he was denying to be, to be uh, Kaishima. So, and then in the evening, the last, I think the last call I got was at 10 in the evening. So it started at 8 in the morning or 6 in the morning. And the last call was at 10 in the evening where uh, they said, well, no, no, he accept, he, he's admitting that he is the person we are looking for. When they get Kaishima, it happens suddenly, without warning. They find a pressure point on someone close to the family who must have known the hiding place. Dodgy identity documents, which have probably been acquired from the same place as Kaishima's. With a lengthy stint in prison hanging over their head, authorities give the individual an hour to decide. But it only takes 15 minutes for the individual to give Kaishima up. Decades of lying and hiding fall away in 15 minutes. As an afterthought, the individual even asked for the $5 million bounty. Needless to say, he didn't get the cash. I did find out who finally gave Kaishima up, and I messaged them. But it was made very clear to me by others involved in the investigation that if I identified them publicly, it would put their family at grave risk. And so we said that 90% of the work had been done by, by your investigators? By my investigators, by the analysts, by the investigators, uh, with this help of South African, Eswatini and Mozambique authorities, yes. And, and did you get any help from the, the US in, in, in all of this, in this, in the last period, the last kind of push? I mean, the US has this uh, strong uh, reward program. I normally once a year, I'm at the State Department where we're discussing those, those issues. So the US, uh, in general terms, has always been, been very supportive and has helped with us, uh, worked with us a lot, but was not now involved in, in, this, in this final fix. There's a big sheet of paper on Serge's desk in his office in The Hague. On it are the pictures of the most wanted Rwandan genocideers. He already caught one of the masterminds of the genocide. Now he can put a red cross through Kaishima's mugshot. For Serge and his team, it was a triumph of diligence, of sourcing things properly, of old-school shoe-leather investigating. But other figures remain at large. Their manhunt will continue. In an age of impunity, when people who commit war crimes remain at large, from Syria and Ukraine to Yemen and Ethiopia, this feels like an important moment, even if it's a more complicated story than it at first seemed. Unfortunately, you are living in a world where impunity is the rule and accountability the exception, I think a lot of people find somehow hope in seeing those cases resolved after so, so many years. This episode was reported by me, Will Brown. The producers were Catherine Bull, Matt Russell and Amy Harper. The sound design was by Sam and Bapa. The editors were Basha Cummings and Jasper Corbett. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.